What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Today Sean talks with Boyd Vardy Boyd had an unconventional upbringing He grew up on Londolozi Game Reserve in South Africa a place where man and nature strive for balance where perils exist alongside wonders Founded more than 80 years ago as a hunting ground, Londolozi was transformed into a nature reserve beginning in 1973 by Vardy's father and uncle, visionaries of the restoration movement. Vardy shares his harrowing tales like an encounter with a black mamba and what it's like to have a lion lock you in their gaze and run at you full speed, as well as many other exhilarating stories. This isn't just a talk about animals and nature. It's a story of transformation that inspires a great appreciation for the beauty and order of the natural world. With conviction, hope, and humor, Vardy makes a passionate claim for the power of the wild to restore the human spirit. One of the newest sponsors of the podcast and one of my favorite brands right now is Viore Clothing. Viore is the perfect performance apparel for anyone who loves yoga, surfing, hiking, being active, or in the weight room. They combine innovative fabrics with cool finishes that really feel good and are great for the environment. I would head over to vioreclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com to receive 25% off. Yes, that's 25% off your first order. Use discount code WGYT. And if at any point you're not satisfied with the purchase, send it back. That's 25% off your order with 100% satisfaction guaranteed at vioreclothing.com. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the San Blas Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Boyd, thank you for joining us on What Got You There. How are you today? Hey, Sean. Absolutely fantastic. Really good to be here with you. So based on that accent, where, uh, where are you from today? Right now, I'm sitting in the middle of one of the largest tracts of uh, wilderness in the world. I'm at Londolozi Game Reserve, um, which is contiguous with the Kruger National Park, which is one of the first transfrontier national parks. Uh, it runs all the way along our eastern border into Mozambique and then north up into uh, Zimbabwe. So it's a tremendous expanse of land and actually... Uh, on the way over here, the, the only traffic I had to deal with was a herd of elephants that were <laughs> drinking at a waterhole close to the dam. So, uh, you know, I'm, and you know, we do have an internet connection here, and I hope it holds up all right for us. <laughs> yeah, certainly, uh, the the elephants there are a little different than my typical morning commute, but uh, I cannot wait to get further into Londolozi and then everything you guys have going on there. But I, I want to start where you open your book. Uh, you had an encounter as a young boy with a black mamba. Uh, can you share that story with us? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually uh, I was thinking about it today because I went on a run through the wilderness. And last night we had a little bit of rain. So when you run on a day after the rain, you really got to keep your eyes open because it's we're coming into our winter season, but a little bit of rain can trigger the snakes coming out. But So I was thinking I had black mambas on the mind, actually. A black mamba is a, it's an in, it's a snake that commands a tremendous amount of respect. They can grow up to three meters. Um, they're fast moving. People who catch them know that they're a difficult snake to catch because they're agile, they're fast, they're big. And I actually once spoke to a guy who had been bitten by a black mamba and he said 
almost instantly as the snake bit him, he felt the a taste in his mouth change, and he realized that that was how quickly the venom went into his body. Um, it was instant, and he felt this strange taste in his mouth, and immediately his tongue started to go numb. Um, but what happened to me was when I was about 10 years old, uh, I went out. We, we used to, at that time, we don't do it anymore, but we used to hunt uh, for meat. Uh, I went out with my father to hunt an impala, and it was a day, it had just rained, and it was still overcast, so the, this, it was sort of gray and the sort of low light in the overcast. And there was a termite mound, and some of these termite mounds out here get really large. They, they can be, you know, six, six foot tall and, and sort of a broad base going up to a sharp point, and they've been built over hundreds of years by termites. And we saw the mound, and a herd of impala was maybe 100 yards uh, away from us on the other side of the mound. And so what my father said is, let's use the mound as cover and we'll crawl in and we'll, we'll peek up over the side and the mound had bushes on it, it had grass growing on it, it had some thorn trees growing on it. And we'll see if we can find a gap in the foliage and see if there's a chance to take a shot off the top of the mound uh, at one of the rams in the herd below. And so we, we did our stalk. It took us maybe 10, 15 minutes to get uh, well positioned on the mound. And then because of the shape of the mound, we were actually lying up against it. So the, the ground was rising up towards us and we were lying against it. And I rested the rifle on the top of the mound and I looked through the scope and a shot presented itself. And my father said to me, take the shot. And I pulled the trigger. And just as I shot, the herd did something that impala, which are the antelopes, sometimes do. They briefly ran and scattered and then they stopped. And my father said to me, keep, keep watching and just make sure that the animal's gone down. And so I was peering through the scope and I was just checking to see if the animal had gone down uh, where it had been standing. And right at that moment, I just felt this movement across the back of my leg. And I remember glancing down and immediately seeing the, this very distinct coffin-shaped head of a black mamba. And the snake was coming out of a hole that was at the base of where our feet were. And I just remember that it continued to come out of the hole. It was like it would never end. Just snake and then more snake and then more snake. And in the end, it was about a two and a half, three meter black mamba. It was a huge snake. And I, I immediately grabbed my father and I said to him, oh shit, dad, there's a mamba. And he started to look around like it's like, somewhere around us. I said to him, no, no, it's right on us. Stand still, stay dead still. And as a kid, I had been uh, an avid collector of snakes. Um, I, I was just always interested in snakes as a kid growing up in the bush. And I had read a book by the snake catcher called uh, Austin Stevens, and he had had encounters with black mambas. And the, the book had been full of encounters where he'd had to freeze. And so I knew somewhere deep down inside that our only option was to keep really, really still. And the snake con continued to move over us. I think it had felt like our presence on the mound, it had felt our vibration on the mound and it had now come out to investigate or it had been disturbed. And I remember looking across at my father and seeing this trickle of blood start to pour out of his mouth. And I realized that he was biting the inside of his cheek with such intensity that the blood had started to flow out and everything was happening painfully slowly. The snake was moving over us with this like horrifying sort of slow motion almost. And I thought to myself, if it turns and it comes up the mound and starts crawling around our face, I don't know if my, my nerve is going to be able to hold that. <laughs> and, and then slowly it started to turn away from us. And my father who grew up uh, in the bush, you know, he had that, he has that real, instinctual sense of someone who grew up in wilderness and I could see him starting to assess our, our escape route. And, and at that moment he heard a plane in the sky and I could see that he was computing. If one of us got bitten, he could probably get a hold of that plane and get it to land. And he started to have this whole thing, you know, our escape route play out. And he was judging, is the snake far enough away from us that we can burst off the mound? And he was looking for the right escape route that took us 180 degrees away from the head of the snake. And he picked a, a gap in the top of the mound 
it would mean that we would have to explode off the top of the mound and run into a buffalo thorn, which is a gnarly uh, thorn tree. But he waited for the moment and then suddenly he said to me, now, and he grabbed me and he ran straight at this thorn tree. And I just remember him tucking his head down and sort of charging into it and then pulling me in behind him. And when we came out the other side, he had thorns sticking out of his shoulder. He had a branch of a thorn, like an antler sticking out of the top of his head. And I was pretty much untouched. Um, <laughs> and we got out of there. We, we got back to our vehicle and the both of us were just absolutely uh, shaking. Uh, but I've thought about it a lot over the, uh, as my journey has progressed over the years. And, you know, I'm always, I'm, what I'm struck by is this notion of um, become still before you react. You know, if we had just freaked out, there was no, there was nowhere to go and that snake was on us, we probably both would have got bitten. But the, the presence of mind that came out of the conditioning of having grown up in nature to, to first be still and then to assess and from a, 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 an alert but calm place, try and work out what our moves were is what kept us alive that day. Wow, Boyd, I don't, I don't think we've started the podcast uh, at any other time as, as with a good of story as, as you just provided there. Uh, I mean, I'm also curious though, <laughs> how did your family first become uh, involved in the safari business? Yeah, it's a, I'm a fourth generation custodian of this land. And the, the story of the land here begins really with the intake of too much gin. <laughs> and what happened was- is, That's usually is how great, great things begin, correct? Yeah, it's the start of many good stories, I should imagine. <laughs> but my great grandfather was at a um, he was at a tennis club, a tennis game in Johannesburg, and they were drinking gin and playing tennis. And they heard about these bankrupt cattle farms that lay, lay adjacent to the Kruger National Park. And the land was bankrupt for two reasons: one, it's very difficult terrain to run cattle on; it's hard land. Uh, and the other reason is that lions were eating the cattle. And it, while everyone was getting out, something inside of my grandfather, particularly because he was an adventurer and he was an avid hunter, he thought that this would be amazing. And so sight unseen, he and a friend went down to the deeds office and they bought this property having never been, never been there. And I often think about how the sort of defining, the central defining feature of my life, uh, something that has been so defining to me was purchased completely on a whim and a dream of adventure, really. And so my great-grandfather came here for the, for the first time in the June of 1926. And they caught a train that ran through the south of the property, and they bribed the train driver to stop. And they got off the train, and they took out a compass. And they knew if they walked on a bearing of north, eventually they should hit a river. And that would tell them that they had arrived at their property. And I always think it must have been an amazing moment as the train pulled off and these two men were left standing in this complete un unknown wilderness with their compass. And, uh, and they set off on their adventure. And it, eventually, they arrived under a tree on the riverbank um, where the Londolozi camp is to this day. And they slept there. And I, I should imagine that sometime during that first night, a lion roared and they woke up in the morning to a misty... Uh, a misty scene over the river and they really, they, it was in that moment that they absolutely fell in love with the place. And so for three generations, my family would come here in the winter months and they would come to hunt lions. And that was, that was what they did. Um, that's how my grandfather grew up hunting lions. And then eventually my father and uncle grew up hunting lions and the land was the, the accommodations were very rudimentary. It was mud huts um, with, grass that they had cut from the surrounding clearings and laid on the roof. And I'm told that occasionally when it rained while you were staying in the accommodations, people would go outside for shelter. <laughs> um, and they would live off the land. They would hunt in parlor. They would eat majority meat all through the, the winter months while they were here. They would bring some root vegetables. They had a goat at that time for, for milk. But it was very, very rudimentary. Um, and at that time, too, the land... The land had been largely overgrazed, and where the cattle had overgrazed the land, there was eye-high scrub. This, this thick encroachment of scrub had come in where the, the land had been overgrazed. And because the lions and the leopards had been hunted, um, 
if they saw people, normally they would kind of get away from them. And so when you read the old game books that my grandmother kept, if they saw a few antelope and a glimpse of a lion during a, a month or two of being here, it was quite miraculous. And then in 1969, there was a real defining moment uh, in our journey. And what happened was, is my grandfather died very suddenly on a, on a, a bird shoot. And my father was about 15 years old. And my uncle was about 17 years old. And in the wake of that loss, the family gathered, as, as happens in the wake of a tragedy, the family gathered in Johannesburg. And the advisors of the family said, well, first things first, you've got to get rid of that wild, crazy place where you go <laughs> uh, to hunt lions. It, it was a bad investment to start with. Hunting lions is a dangerous pastime because, as we know, lions bite. Um, and it's just, it's a bad idea. And you two young boys need to need to get through college and you need to look after your mother, get like jobs as accountants and, and look after your mother. And something deep inside my father and uncle just, and, and this has always interested me in me, something deep inside of them knew that that wasn't their path and they kicked against it and they stood up defiantly as only teenagers can in the family meeting. And they said, we're keeping that place and we'll make it pay. And that's how my family originally got into the safari business. I mean, and, and so, yeah, these, so, and so these two young boys with these three mud huts on this dilapidated piece of land set off to start to run safaris. And it was an absolute shambles. They <laughs> bought an old Land Rover that only had a broken tie rod in. So it only turned left. They did, uh, they ran canoe safaris for a while until they hit a, a hippo in the river with their canoe, broke their canoe, and spray, someone sprained their ankle on the hippo's head. So they canceled canoe safaris. They did walking safaris for a while, but it was very, very rudimentary. And then uh, a few years into that journey, a really interesting thing happened. A man by the name of Ken Tinley uh, arrived by their fire one night. And Ken Tinley was a fascinating character. He had dropped out of high school, but then been admitted to a biological sciences degree because he drew a picture of a butterfly with such intricate detail that for some reason, the dean of the faculty put him into the, the course. And Ken had, had finished his biological sciences degree, and then he had gone and worked in a reserve in Mozambique where he had lived by himself for years. And during that time, he had mapped the waterways of this reserve and he had walked around and sketched with a pen and paper how the moisture moved across the landscape. And living alone in that kind of union with nature, he developed what can only really be described as an almost romantic connection with landscape. He, he felt the entire natural system living inside of him. And he understood how the rainfall moved across the topography of the landscape and how that informed your soils and how that informed your vegetation. And then that, how that informed the way the animals moved on, on the landscape. So when he arri arrived at Londolozi, this dilapidated, um, sort of make it up as you go along safari operation. And he met these two young boys who were passionate about what they were doing, but had really no idea what they were doing. He said to them, and this became our guiding philosophy. If you want this place to work, you need to partner with the land and you need to begin to think of the animals as your kin. And they said, partner with the land. Well, what do you mean by that? And he said, come, I'll show you. And he walked them out on the landscape and he showed them how where the cattle had grazed the land bare, this eye high scrub had come up and the scrub meant that the plains had been lost to the scrub. And it all was because we were losing moisture uh, the cattle grazed the land, then the rain fell. Instead of going into the soil, it was running off. And then the scrub came up. And he showed them how to start to clear the scrub away and take the scrub and pack it into these thick, erosive ravines where they were losing the moisture. And as they started to do this process, they started to work on the land. They started to restore the, these erosive furrows. They started to clear the scrub away. And amazing things started to happen. Slowly, they started to see planes game returning. They would go out onto a clearing where there'd be nothing but eye high scrub and suddenly there would be a herd of zebra and a herd of impala. And then the next day, some waterbuck would have come onto the property. 
And they started to get this really deep sense that as they worked on the land, the land was starting to respond. The animals were starting to come back. And a kind of relationship was being rebuilt. Um, and then about 10 years into that process, driving home one day in the late afternoon light, a female leopard stepped out onto the road in front of them. And it was the first time that a leopard stepped onto the road and stopped and allowed herself to be seen. And she turned and she growled at them and she had this one broken canine. And then she slipped off the road and, and went on her way. And they drove, ho drove home together in silence. And when they got home, I don't know if you've ever had like a scary encounter in a car where like you sort of pull off the road after something a little unbelievable has happened and you stop the car and everyone just sits there for a moment in absolute silence. They turned off and they sat. And then my uncle turned to my father and he said, I don't know what just happened, but that is my future. That's my destiny. And from that day on, he teamed up with a Shanghai tracker, a local tracker, an incredible tracker by the name of Elmonim Shongo. And for the next 12 years, every day they went out and they tracked that leopard. And sometimes weeks would go by when they didn't see her. And then when they did see her, they would park their beaten up Land Rover two, 300 yards from her. And they would watch her and they would let her get used to the idea of the Land Rover. And slowly, over years and years, she started to realize that they meant her no harm, a completely wild leopard. And we called that leopard the mother leopard because she was really the mother of, of what Londolozi is today. And we called her the mother for two reasons. One, because she had a number of litter of cubs. And all of her cubs grew up modeling their mother's trust that, and understanding that the people here meant no harm. And then we also called her the mother because word started to get out that there was a place out in the wild eastern part of South Africa where you could go and have encounters uh, with wild leopards. They would allow you to see them. And that had this incredible, almost mystical allure to people. And suddenly images started to come out of these leopards. Photographers started to come. And towards that restoration of the land and this relationship that was rebuilt with the animals, people started to come. And the safari business went from being this dilapidated, rundown operation uh, to what is now an, an international brand for restoration, um, a world-class safari operation that people come from all over the world to, and uh, a place that has been instrumental in inspiring the ecotourism uh, industry in Southern Africa, a place that has been advocated for the restoration and protection of wildlands all over Southern Africa, and really a model for what the tourism, uh, sustainable tourism industry became in Southern Africa. And so, you know, I'm, I, I, there's so many dimensions to the story for me, but I'm always amazed by what can happen out of partnership, out of relationship with the land, when we commit to restoring, everything has, for us, has come from that relationship actually with the land and the landscape. And it, I, I look now at the different elements and the people that this business is supporting and the local people that are benefiting from being here and the, the animals that are safe and the guests that are having incredible experiences. And it all comes from that intention to reconnect uh, with the natural world and to to restore it. Such an incredible and, story. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, and I was just going to say, and I'm also, I, I really feel like, you know, touching in on the exploration of your work and what got you there, I'm, I've just, I've really felt compelled in my own life, I guess, based on the ancestry that I come from, I've been trying to train myself to see my destiny when it crosses my path, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't know how my great-grandfather knew that he, you know, deep in a gin party wanted to buy this place. I don't know how my father and uncle knew that instead of giving it up, they, they were going to go towards this incredible uncertainty and unknown. But they knew from a deeper place inside themselves. And I've become very interested in living and trying to work out how to live from that deeper place. And I've started to think of it as living on the track of the wild self inside of you. Can you f go further on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that inside each one of us, 
Well, this is my this is this is what I'm tracking. Inside each one of us is a part of us. Call it the wild self. Call it our most essential self. But a part of us that knows what it's meant to do, and it knows what it's meant to do in the way that a lion knows how to be a lion, in the way that a leopard knows that it likes to move in secret, shadowy places. It knows in the way that a bud knows to open to spring. It, it is like coded into us. And then overlaying that wild self is our social self. And we need some social self because we're social creatures. But it, for most of us, that social self completely overruns that deeper wild self. And it's, it's, it, it overruns it to the point where we lose contact with that deeper part of ourselves. And I believe that like all good tracking, uh, tracking is, is something that I'm passionate about. And tracking is the direction of attention. And it's learning to see what very few other people can't see. It's learning to be tuned in. And I feel like now I'm always on the trail of my wild self. I'm trying to turn my attention away from all of the things that I should do or the right or the rational thing to do. And I'm trying to find the track of what that deeper thing is. And I'm learning to go into the unknown to find it. And I'm learning to, to learn to see what the trail, how that deeper place speaks inside me and try and live from that place. And it's freaking terrifying, man. But, <laughs> but I feel like that's my obligation based on what this place has taught me and uh, what the people who've inspired me lives have taught me. You mentioned about going after certain things in life. And when do you feel most alive? Is it when you're actually out on the track uh, in the reserve? I would say that when I go tracking, um, definitely I'm aware of a few things. One, I'm aware that I forget about time. And there's no, there's no notion of time. When I'm really engaged by a track, if I'm on the trail of a lion or I'm on the trail uh, of an animal, um, I feel all other thoughts start to disappear. I don't get hungry. I don't get thirsty. I don't um, neurotically perseverate or anything. I feel myself go into absolute presence. And so I've learned that that feeling is what I is when I'm on the track is what I'm trying to translate to other parts of my life. It, that feeling of utter presence and and complete engagement is the way my wild self speaks to me. It's the sort of, that is the track of my wild self. And when I'm doing that, I'm, I'm on that track. I would say the only thing that I've added to that now is um, a deep desire to, to share that with other people. And so while I still love going out alone, one of my real passions now is if I can take um, other people who are seeking something out onto the track with me and we can talk about how you go about following the track and how that can translate to living, living life on the track of the wild self. I mean, it sounds like you're entering into a flow state during these times, huh? I, I mean, I've been interested in flow states, but, and I certainly feel like tracking puts you in it because, I mean, let me give you an example. So um, a little while ago, I was on the track of uh, a female leopard and she was walking on the edge of the river and down in the river, it was very thick, but there was a game path, a path that animals use quite a lot on, uh, on the bank of the river. And she was weaving between these big ebony trees, but out of sight for me. But I knew the track was fresh because I could tell in the powdery sand of the game path that uh, the, the lines of the track were very well defined. And I could see these beautiful four toes and this three-lobed back pad just like a cat's footprint, but just sort of blown up to the size of a man's fist. And as she, as she moved, I could feel by the way that the tracks were landing, the cadence of her movement. And so slowly I could feel myself starting to move at her pace. And the way that you can tell that is that the back foot was landing directly in front of her front, front foot. This is what the tracks were telling me. And so slowly I can tell she's not moving very fast. If the back foot was landing further ahead of that, her front foot, it would mean she's moving quickly. So I start to follow and I can feel myself based on the cadence that the tracks are telling me dropping into her cadence. And then up ahead, about 200 yards away, a monkey starts to alarm. And it's this very distinctive sound. Ew, 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 ew. And I can tell that the monkey is seeing uh, the leopard. 
So now the tracks are telling me a story and the bush is starting to speak to me. And then about 300 yards ahead of where the monkey is staring down into the river, suddenly I hear an Anyala start to call. And it's this very distinctive bark. <clears throat> and now the Anyala is talking to me and the monkey is talking to me and the tracks are telling a story. And as my as I start to tune into all of that, I it's you know it's that very strange feeling where I start to feel myself as small and big at the same time because I'm experiencing myself on this track in relation to everything else. The story of Boyd is starting to fall away and the story of the track is starting to become what's alive and you know that whole idea of the the tracker and the track are starting to merge. Everything is talking to me. The track is telling a story. The animals are talking. Birds are alarming. And as I start to merge with the way that everything is talking to me, I start to realize that this leopard is moving, marking her territory along the riverbed. And all the information is there. And I feel myself in touch with sort of the field of information around me. And it's just pure awareness. And in that state, I'm definitely aware of like Boyd being pushed aside and just this pure experience of, of unity. And, and one of the reasons that I like to take people into nature is that it's the opposite of what we live with in modern life. It's the opposite of the, in, of hyper individuality. It's a place where the entire place is relational. Everything is about knowing yourself in relation to everything else and allowing the story, particularly while you're tracking, to unfold. Um, and then there was a place further up ahead where she had marked, she had scraped the ground and she had urinated a little bit. And there was, leopards have the most incredible urine. It has this amazing smell of like, almost like popcorn. And then there was the sense that entered into it. And all of these senses came to life. And something that struck me pretty intensely about it and I, I definitely translate this into the coaching work that I do. You could walk down that same trail without the right attention and you could miss it all. You could miss the track. You could not see it. You could miss the monkey alarming. The Inyala alarming could be absolutely meaningless. When birds started to call an alarm, you could miss it. You could miss the scent. It could mean nothing to you. And I really, I've been as I work with people, I realize that, you know, a lot of the time in our lives, we look, but we don't see, uh, we, we listen, but we don't hear. And I call it track consciousness. It's actually a kind of tuning in, um, and coming back into yourself, coming back into your senses and starting to pay attention again so that when the wild self does speak, it, you, you recognize it, you don't miss it because you're Facebooking or Instagramming or, you know, or often in some other dream, like you've actually got to train your attention to see your track when it crosses your path. You know, even when you, uh, there's sort of, there's this thing when you meet people, which is maybe, an, an, I mean, it's sort of what I'm talking about. It's an, I guess it's a me trying to give an example, but I mean, you, you meet incredible people. Have you ever met someone and immediately as you met them, had that feeling of like, you meet a hundred people, but you meet them and something inside of you goes like you, 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 you know, and you feel mm -hmm. this like instant connection. Like there's something about this person that is important for me. There's something about this person that's inspiring for me. And it stands out amongst all the people you met that you didn't get that feeling. And I think of, of track consciousness of, of, and of living as a tracker as making sure that you don't miss the way that life will talk to you. Um, and preparing yourself, being still enough inside and, and knowing the language that knowing the tracks of your wild self well enough that when you're on a trail and it's starting to talk to you, you're getting it, you're getting the way that the clues are, are laid out. It's incredible to hear you talk about it. Following my gut, I guess would, would be the way I relate to what you're talking about. And I've had a lot of conversations recently, uh, with people closest to me about following my gut more and, and you talk about getting caught up in kind of the day-to-day -day monotony of 
Facebook or an Instagram and, and, and tuning into more of your animal self. And it's unbelievable that you actually take people out on these tracks. And I know you have the track your life retreats and I'm sure the listeners are going to be excited to hear even more about that and then check that out in the show notes. But I'm curious, did you have a, a scariest moment at all during one of your tracks? I'm sure you've got stories that could go on for days, but is there one that really stands out about a time that during a track you might've felt incredibly fearful? I mean, I, th- there's two that come to mind. Um, the, 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 one, the one that occurred was uh, myself and my two mentors, a guy by the name of Alex Vandenhefer and a Shangan man who was his mentor, who's one of the probably, if not the best, one of the best trackers in the world, a guy by the name of Renia Simshongo. We tracked a pride of lions uh, all through the day. We, we tracked them for a couple of hours, maybe four or five hours. And it, it, it was an amazing story because the first thing that happened is a male lion roared. And we were sitting around the fire in the early morning light. And as this lion roared, Renia stood up and he did a very funny thing. He's, he, he almost played a golf shot. He had recently seen golf on TV. And he was fascinated by this idea of dropping a ball onto a designated spot And as the lion roared somewhere out in the wilderness, I realized that he was almost trying to drop, pinpoint where that sound was coming from. And he said to us, somewhere around Lex's pan, somewhere in that area, that's where we should go. And so we got in an old vehicle and we started driving in that direction. And immediately I was struck by this notion that, you know, the first thing about living as a tracker is trackers always go into the unknown. There, that lion, the wilderness was huge. That lion was like a needle in a haystack. There were a thousand reasons why we shouldn't go. It was, there was, uh, the odds were stacked against us, but, the, but to the tracker, the thing that takes them forward is curiosity. They want to go. They want to go despite the odds. They want to go find out. And if they don't find something, that's okay. But their inclination is to go into the unknown. So we drove out to this waterhole. We got, onto the, we, we got out on the Land Rover in the area where we thought the lion had roared. And Renia started walking circles. He started checking the area. And there was all of this information laid down on the ground. There was a herd of elephant that had come down. There was tracks of impala. And amidst all of this information, boom, he picked this track of a single male lion. And he turned onto the track and immediately he began to follow. And from there, we followed that single male lion for for about two hours. And at one point, he dropped down into a drainage line, and he sat down, and he began to listen. And the way that we could tell he was listening is that he, we could tell by the tracks in the sand that he had stopped, and he had picked his head up over his shoulders. And as he had picked his head up to listen, the weight of his head was pushing his paws down into the soft sand, and so the, the paw, paw marks were deep in the sand. And my friend Alex said to me, this lion's listening. And then he started to bound down the riverbed, and he bounded like that for almost a kilometer, and then he cut up onto the riverbank and he was moving through a terrain of open scrub and acacia. And I thought to myself, you know, I've never been to this area and I've lived on my, this reserve my whole life, but I've never been to this place. And it, it really hit me in that moment that when you live as a tracker, it will take you places you couldn't have imagined to go. It will take you somewhere beyond what you thought, you know, beyond where you could rationally think you wanted to go. And then the tracks of the lion teed onto the tracks of a herd of about 1,200 buffalo. And right at that moment, this male, the, I'm telling you the story as the tracks told them to us, that the male lay down and he began, began to rub himself in buffalo dung. And Renias, this master Shangan track, he said to me, look at this lion. He's preparing himself to hunt. He's actually smearing himself with the scent of buffalo. And then his tracks turned and started to move on the tracks of the herd. And here watching the trackers, the, the ground had been churned up by the hooves of these buffaloes. And the tracking was very difficult. But watching these two master trackers, I saw them moving in an almost zigzag. And they would, they would just walk very casually and then they would pick a little piece of a track. They would get a bit of a side toe of the line, a little bit of the back pad. And then they would recalibrate their course. They would vector and they would just move forward again. And then they would pick another track. And the whole time it was impossible to go track for track, but they would just move on where they thought he had moved and get little moments of confirmation. And the energy state that they was, were in was fascinating to me because they were, 
intensely committed to finding that lion, but they hadn't allowed that commitment to become a burden to them. And so the whole time they were almost in a state of play. They were playing on the tracks. They were laughing. They were joking with each other. One would pick up the track. The other would lose it. Another would pick up the track. And it was almost this very generative state that they got into. And then up ahead, the tracks of the lion um, joined with the tracks of three females. And you could see one female came in, then a second female, then a third female. And lions are the only sociable cats. So for a moment, they all greeted each other. And you could see as they moved around in a circle, they rubbed up against each other. And then there were some tracks that were almost on top of each other as they had walked like pressed up against each other. Their tracks had been falling almost in each other's tracks. And right at that moment, as we realized, okay, this is now a single male and he's been joined by three females. This is a pride of lions coming together. And up ahead of us, a battlier eagle, which is a, a beautiful eagle that we get here, flew up off the ground, but a, but a long way away. And Renia said, you know, when a battlier flies up off the ground like that, it can mean one of two things in this situation. You see, the trackers are creating a, a narrative all the time. Either these lions have killed up ahead, or um, one of these buffalo has given birth to a calf. And so we started to approach, and as we approached, the bush started to thicken up around us. And I had this very distinct feeling of moving towards on the trail of a pride of lions into thicker terrain. It was almost like something else woke up inside of me, and I could feel a kind of uh, alertness and an aliveness and an attention starting to look through me. And it was almost as if my own biology was just saying, this, this is getting more dangerous, tune in, tune up a level. And I felt this very intense clarity come online. And I've come to think that maybe one of the dangers of modern life is sort of a danger of no danger, because there is definitely a deeper alertness that turns on inside of us when we have to face situations. We moved in on where we thought the bird had been. And then when we got to within where we thought it was, we couldn't find anything. There was scrubland grass. We couldn't find a track. And right at that moment, Renia stopped. He stood very still. And Alex and I were walking around looking for tracks. But because he was standing still, he saw flies going past us. Zion, zion. And he started to move in the direction of the flies. And then he put his head up and he started to sniff the air. And he actually caught the scent of meat. And he moved in and he got us into this, uh, moved and he got us into a position where we, we actually found the remains of a small uh, buffalo calf and the lions had obviously killed it and then eaten it. And he did a quick calculation, four lions, a small calf. They weren't full. If they had been full, they just would have gone into the shade and fallen asleep. Um, but they weren't full. It was a small calf. The male lion probably would have dominated the carcass and got most of the meat. And then at that moment, he felt the heat on his own body. And he said, these lions need to go and drink now. They're going to go to water. So again, he was using the narrative, the story we were in. He was dropping into the narrative. He was in touch with himself. He was listening. He was tuned into the signs. And that allowed him to make a call. He said, he said you got to go to the river. So we made our way. It's about a two-kilometer walk. We didn't even bother looking for tracks. We just knew we got to get down to the river and we got to move on the game paths of the river. And what we're hoping to do, they call it speculative deductive tracking. We're hoping that our track will cut onto the tracks of the lion as they, as they come down to drink. So we know that they're probably going to move in that direction. We're trying to create a right angle onto their tracks. And the trackers trust themselves that if we just cross their path, they would see the track. We get down to the river. We start moving along the game path. And right at that moment, um, we actually cut back onto the tracks of the lions. And the tracks were, by this stage, incredibly fresh. I mean, very, very fresh. They were beautifully laid out. And the lions moved down the path, and you could see where the females had walked first, and then the male had walked behind them. And they walked along the riverbank, and we started to hear, a little bit like I was telling you earlier, we started to hear the bush starting to speak. Up ahead of us, we started to hear animals alarming. We heard a kudu bark. We heard monkeys alarming. Down by the river, the, the, the monkeys are often down there. We heard a baboon start to call, rah, ooh, 
wow. So we knew we were on the trail and we knew these lions were now quite close by. And then their trail turned and cut down a riverbank and into these thick reeded tunnels. And the, the sort of the base of the river is covered in thick reeds. And then when hippos move down into the river, they cut these thick tunnels through the reeds. And the minute you go down there, you lose all sense of hearing because the wind blows in the reeds and it creates like a white noise background and you lose all visibility. So when the lions turned and they cut down into these tunnels, I've got to be honest with you and tell you that we all stood on the bank for a moment and we looked at each other for a long time to try and decide, are we going down there? Because down there in that thicket, we know that there's monsters down there and we don't, we don't know if we, want to go, if we want to go down there into no visibility. But we've been on the trail for a couple of hours and these two guys I'm with, Alex and Renius, are two of the most experienced trackers in the world and I could see them calculating it and they decided we're going to go for it. We stepped off the riverbank, we walked down and within moments we were engulfed by these reeds. And... At one stage, we the reeds were such, the tunnels were such that we got down on our hands and knees. We started crawling on on all fours through the tunnels. And I remember midway through the tunnel coming across a huge lion turd. And the size of it was absolutely daunting. <laughs> and the stench of lion was thick in the air. And I just felt my heart rate starting to, to climb. And again, I felt like this incredible visual acuity. Um. And then the tunnel opened up onto a beach. And on the beach, you could see very clearly it was river sand. And then the beach ran to like a water's edge where the, where the actual current of the river was running. And you could see the lions spread out and they had gone to the water to drink. And as we walked over to the edge, we saw the tracks of the male. And then we saw the tracks of three females. And we knew that there had been three females. And then in from the side, we, thought we saw the tracks of a fourth female. And then next to the tracks of the fourth female, we saw the track of what looked to me like a civet, which is like a, a civet is almost like a raccoon-sized creature. But almost as I saw that track, Renius and Alex saw it too, and they realized, no, that's not the track of the civet. That's the track of a cub. And what had happened was these three lionesses, in their pride, there was a fourth lioness, and she had stayed in the river with the cubs. And now, as they had come down to drink somewhere very close to us, this fourth female had joined them with the cubs. And it dawned on us almost instantaneously that we were now in very, very thick terrain with a pride and their cubs. And lions are most dangerous on two occasions. One, if they're on meat. And two, if they have cubs. Lionesses with cubs are absolutely terrifying. And if you, if you end up in an encounter with a lioness with cubs, Normally what happens is the first thing is you, you, you start to hear growling. And it's like someone started a dirt bike in the bush somewhere near you. The, the sound is so intense, it sounds mechanical. And then you look at the direction of the sound and normally then you'll see the lioness. And as she sees you, she stands up, she puts her head down and she locks you in a gaze that is so energetically terrifying that you feel like someone has reached out and slapped you because it's like the energy of intensity of, of aggression and anger comes out and it hits you. I don't know if you've ever uh, been in a, a situation with someone who's being very aggressive and, that, and they lock that aggression on you and you suddenly feel like, oh, this is happening. Um, then she starts to walk towards you and the tail is lashing and everything starts to slow down and time starts to collapse and it, it feels almost your vision feels almost psychedelic. Everything pops. You can see her gums vibrating. You can see the whiskers trembling. You can see the teeth. Uh, the sound is unbelievable. And then she'll come at you. And in that moment, your only hope is to stand your ground. And you stand and you shout back. And if you give an inch, if you run, if you fall over, she'll be on you in seconds. And a lion will tear you apart in very, very quickly. So, all of this is running through my head as we suddenly realize we're down in the riverbed with with lionesses in their cubs and there's tunnels. And if we run into them in one of these tunnels, I don't know if they've kept moving. Maybe they're around us. On one occasion, uh, Alex and Renius had been in a situation where they got between the mother and the cubs. So we were in as bad a situation as you could get. And I remember Alex and Renius grabbing me and we just crouched down. 
And I could see Renias was using his 40, you know, 50 years of experience. And he was almost feeling into the field around us. It was what he was doing to me was almost shamanic. He was sensing for the presence of these animals. He's trying to know in how much danger we were actually in. And although he's a black man, he, he almost appeared like he had gone white to me too. He was, he, the, the, the blood had drained out of his face. He knew the situation we were in. Alex, uh, who was crouched next to me, turned and looked at me and I could see he had a look on his face, um, which was, it was a smile, but it was, it was like when something is so bad, it's almost become funny, that like nervous tension. And we stayed down on our knees like that for maybe five minutes and we just listened intensely. And somewhere in the reeds ahead of us, I could hear some birds were chirping quite intensely. And I think that they were chirping as the lions as they moved away from us. And then when Renia sensed that it was right, um, he, he grabbed a hold of us and slowly we backed into the tunnels and we started to move out. And we got back onto the riverbank. And while, while on that occasion we had actually, we, we never actually got charged by the animals. For me, having I have been charged a few times, but there was something about the anticipation of it which was almost worse. And the minute we got back up onto the riverbank, we started we started giggling, and it was just like a pure release. And then we moved from tree to tree up on the riverbank, looking down. And eventually, suddenly, we saw the pride lying on a lying on a, a beautiful patch of sand where the reeds opened up, and we could see the cubs playing with them. And it, it was just this after the tension of that moment, this incredible moment of us knowing where they were. And, uh, and yeah, that was, that was one that's definitely stuck in my mind just for pure tension. I mean, that's one of the greatest um, stories all, I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, there's a, there was another time I remember Alex and Renia's telling me that there was another time they got charged by a lion. And what was interesting about it to me is they, they were tracking and they got to a wood pile. They, they, someone had cleared some brush and there was a, like a wood pile. And the, the tracks led up to the wood pile. They thought that was quite strange. They didn't realize that a lioness had stashed her cubs in the wood pile. Right at that moment from behind the wood pile, this lioness appeared. And, and initially she ran away from them. And Alex said while she was running away, he saw her right foreleg flicks. And, you know, the athleticism of a lion is just astounding. He, he saw the right forepaw flex and she pivoted on it. And she pivoted and she ran a tight half circle. And she went from running away from them to, to this half circle and running back at them in, the, in a matter of seconds. And she, she came in super close to within two or three meters. Herenius picked up a log, he threw it at the lion, and she pinned them there for a few minutes and then she backed off. Um, but that was the time where they really thought this lion is, is going to eat us. But I think I should say, just to give the, the listeners context, you know, many, many years in the bush, you'll have a few of those encounters for sure. Like it's, it's inevitable. And the way you handle them will define whether you, you know, their, their outcome. But the more skilled you get at tracking, certainly the more able you are to mitigate for those risk factors. And so you know, it's like the level of skill starts to, to make it actually 99% of the time a very, a very, a, a pastime that you have to do with a lot of alertness, but you can do safely if you, if you pay attention to the signs around you. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to, to give people that, that context, but I mean, really what I find now with tracking is that there's so many, there's just so many lessons, you know, I, I guess you may have heard that thing in that, like at high levels of mastery, um, everything translates. So how you do one thing, you do everything. And I just feel like tracking is one of those places that the metaphorical space of working out how you are going to find something that's difficult to look, that's worth looking for, but difficult to find how you're going to go into the unknown, how you're going to manage your own fears, how you're going to tune into the track and learn to see what you, what's important to you. Um, how you're going to tune into your environment you're going to need first tracks and then another first track and another first track. You're going to have to use your curiosity. You're going to lose the track 100%. And when you do lose it, you're going to have to go back to the last clear track you had, or you're going to have to go 
try some things up ahead, see if you can get back onto it. But it's dynamic. It's you got to you got to keep trying things. You got to keep falling into the story. You got to experience yourself relationally. And if you can do all of those things, you're going to have an incredible time. I've I've been of the, of the mindset that if um if people could go tracking on Saturday mornings, it might be the end of like golf and mountain biking <laughs> and and various other sports. <laughs> I mean, you just have me so inspired to go, to go on a track and I can't wait to to make that happen with you at some point and and hopefully experience some of the things that that we've talked about, but I have to hear you talk about um the term Ubuntu, which I am because of you and and the way you talk about it, uh, I think has really left lasting impact on me. So if you could share that with the listeners, I'd really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And we listen, let's definitely go tracking together. That would be great. Um you know, Sean, I think one of the Ubuntu is an African value and it comes out of the more collective consciousness uh, that African people have. And the idea is, is that the idea of Ubuntu, the value states, I am because of you. Or another way of saying it would be people are not people without other people. But so, so the, the notion is we experience the deepest parts of our own humanity through our interactions with other people. But I have expanded that definition and I've expanded it out of a passion and a love for the natural world and out of seeing what happens when we reconnect with the natural world to say that it is in relation that we experience ourselves. And so it might be with another person, but it might be with a tree, it might be with a mountain. It's to experience ourselves in relation and in context um, is really the core of Ubuntu. And there's a this is a total side story, but I feel like it illustrates something. There's a bird out here called the African honey guide. And if you go out into the bush felt here, as we call it, and you were to take with you a machete and, and bang it on the sides of trees, this bird would come to you. And it arrives with this incredible chattering call. And you know that this bird is trying to get your attention. And if you, if you look up at it, it will start to flutter from tree to tree ahead of you. And this bird will actually guide you to a beehive. And if you were so inclined, you could make a fire and you could brave uh, the stings of the bee, bees as people did for thousands of years who lived in relation with the natural world, and you could smoke the bees in that hive, and you could harvest some of the honey. And if you did that, and you would find yourself sitting against the branch of a tree somewhere, which I've actually done, with a with a well-stung face, a nice mm-hmm. fat lip and a fat eye from being stung, but eating this most delicious honey, you would put the, some, some of the honeycomb out next to you on a little stick, and the bird would land and begin to feed on the honeycomb with you. And the reason I bring it up is because what could be more incredibly ancient than to realize that for thousands of years, we were in communion, we were in relation with wild creatures, so much so that there is a bird that guides people to hives. There's a bird that people once used as a location, a locating device. They were, they were, the bird was the technology that located the hive. And the bird used the people um, because they had opposable thumbs and could wield the tools necessary to extract the honey. I mean, how incredible that there was a time where we lived in communion like that. And to me, that, that speaks to, to the Ubuntu of all things, that we've forgotten that we are a part of. We've forgotten that wild places and wild creatures are our kin. We've forgotten how to that we need other people to discover who we are. And we live in this hyper, hyper individual consumeristic environment where we're always competing and the whole, and and it's very subtle. There's a, there's a subtle underlying sense of scarcity. That means we're always against everyone. We're on the hierarchy of where we fit. And that, and if you do that, what happens is, you become objectified by the system and then you start ob- your own psyche starts objectifying you and you become a thing and other people become things and we, we want to be better than other things. 
And so the Ubuntu to me is a kind of deep rehum. It's like a human making again. It's to remember that people, we need each other. We make each other. People are not born. People are made. We have to help each other remember because part of being a person is that you will fall asleep in your own life. You will make mistakes. You will forget how to go forward. You will forget who you are. And you will need other people uh, to help you remember who you are. And, and you will need wild places to help you rem remember who you are. And you will need wild creatures to remind you how we fit in a deep interwoven web into this great unfolding. And if you don't have that, life becomes very small and very isolating. And so some of, some of my work is that what I find is that people who begin to live as trackers, people who live deeply connected with the wild self, well, when they connect with that place inside of them, inevitably what's important to them starts to change and they live lives that are original and that inspire and that are centered around um, connection and purpose. And, you know, if you, if you can find an authentic life, it has an, a tremendous effect of inspiring and people making to other people. And that's why I feel we, we're in a time right now where we, we need to live as trackers. We need to live in union with the Ubuntu of all things. And we have to put a different center to what's important in our lives because I can't shake the feeling that the way we're doing it in modern life is leaving us all wondering what's this all about. And, and you know, to come back to the Ubuntu of life is what people who are driving culture like yourself, people who are trying to have conversations, uh, people who want to live differently, that's the real goal. Because if we can find a way to live differently and live in relation again, well, we can start to make a new world from that place. So that's, that's my, that's, that's what I'm, that's my, that's my track, you know, that's what I'm on the trail of as best as possible. And it's scary. It's hard because it's, if you want to live like that, you start to go outside of the bounds of, you know, what's laid out for you and you gotta, and you gotta live with courage. That was so beautiful. And I don't think there was a better way to tie together this entire conversation, uh, in that 10 minutes where you just riffed there, that was absolutely incredible. Uh, you've mentioned so many animals during this, and this will be my final question before we uh, link the listeners up with everything you're doing. But if there would be one animal the listeners could could watch in nature and track, which animal do you think it would be? Hmm. It's a good question. I would say, I would say very simply, track the animal body your own animal body. So if you just start paying attention to when your body feels expansive, when you feel relaxed, where you feel open, where you feel expansive and where your body feels contracted, you will start to get on the trail of your wild self. You will find yourself sitting with certain people feeling shut down, like, like your body's in full contraction. You will find yourself in certain situations contracted and you will find yourself in other situations expanded, opening. And if you just start paying attention to that, you're going to start to get on a different trail. And then as an extension of that, you can start, you can start only picking things that take you towards expansion. And if you just start moving a little bit towards expansion every day and start paying attention to that, you're going to start to get on the track of what actually brings you to life. And so I would say track the wild animal body. Our body is, you know, it's an animal at its core and our biology is evolved out in wild places. And if you tune back into that, instead of the mind, which our culture is obsessed with, you're going to start to find a wilder self inside of you. And that wilder self knows what it's meant to do. It knows its purpose, knows what it's called towards. And that's going to be an interesting trail to be on. I mean, there have been few conversations in my life I, I've enjoyed as much as this one. And I, I'm definitely going to have to do a round two with you because we didn't even get to talk about your time with Nelson Mandela, uh, the incredible story you told in your TED talk about your uh, your friend Sully. So there's so much I hope that uh, we can connect on, hopefully live next time and hopefully during a track. But you mentioned some of the things you're doing, track your life retreats, uh, obviously your books out there. Where can the listeners best stay connected with you and uh, what should they be made aware of? Yeah, absolutely. You can you can get a hold of me at boyvati.com. 
And uh, I think I've got one, one slot open on my men's retreat for this year. It's coming up in July. And I'm going to be running a lot of retreats next year. And so, and I might even do some in America. So just get in, get in contact and we can start to let you know if we're doing any, anything in America and we can start to let you know about retreats that'll be happening in South Africa. That would be wonderful. Well, Boyd, you are an incredible storyteller. You're someone who's lived such an amazing life so far. But what I love most is, is that you're tracking your own life and you're helping people see the change that, that they want and they can go after in their own lives. So Boyd, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There and I can't wait to do this again. Well, Sean, I'm really looking forward to it and uh, maybe I'll see you when I'm stateside. Thanks so much for the chat. Great, thanks. Looking to freshen up your wardrobe for the summer season? Having trouble finding a brand whose products are functionally built to move and sweat in, but designed with a casual aesthetic aimed at everyday life? Then Viore is the clothing brand you've been looking for. Viore merges technical clothing with a West Coast vibe that looks and fits great. Viore's motto is built to move in, styled for life. They have a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore has incorporated innovative fabrics that feature anti-odor finishes, moisture wicking, and quick dry finishes. My favorite being Sea Cell, which is a sustainably sourced fiber that uses a blend of algae and wood pulp to create the most comfortable shirts you've ever felt. They really are. They're incredible. They're also anti-odor and filled with vitamins and nutrients that are released when you sweat. To receive 25% off, yes, that's 25% off your order, head to vioriclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com and use discount code W-G-Y-T. If at any point you're unsatisfied with your purchase, send it back. That's 25% off your entire order with a 100% satisfaction guaranteed. VioriClothing.com, discount code WGYT for 25% off your order. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the San Blas Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.